Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. indicators who knows where this is going to end up to understand the economy you have to understand human nature this podcast is powered by Acast how are you doing there happy new year strange one 2021 back in the lockdown it's been a weird weird Christmas and I'm sure maybe like myself you're kind of feeling that up until last week, the pandemic was quite remote. And over the last few days, it's almost like an unwelcome visitor at the door. There's a sense, there's a sort of a, an unnerving sense that this bloody thing is right upon us. How are you doing, Head? I'm very good. I'm trying to wake myself out of the Christmas slumber. That's always difficult for you. It's very difficult because you remember I said, like, this Christmas I'm doing nothing. And that's exactly what I did. I did nothing. I spent most of it in my Jimmy Jammers. It's that's terrific. A, that's a lovely image. So this is the first day I've actually dressed myself. Well, you're looking fantastic, John. You're looking, you've slimmed down. You're, you know, you're looking fit to fiddle. What were you doing over Christmas? Well, I tell you, speaking of fit to fiddle, I I don't know if you wrote notice on Twitter just before New Year's Eve, all these ads kept coming up for apps for health. And right. one of them was walk your way to fitness, <laughs> right? So I thought, oh, I like the sound of that. Yeah, that's run. easy. I can do okay? that. So I got the app, some American app going, let's whack. Okay. But anyway, the problem is I decided to go for a 20K walk the other day, right? Down Dunleary, the two, the right. two Martello Towers, Seapoint, Sandy Cove, up yeah, there. Power thing. walking, I'm power, sure. No, no, not parking, no, no, slouching. Right. Power slouching. <laughs> right. Sashaying. Yeah, exactly. Exactly, like an air hostess. You know? <laughs> yeah. But I went uh, with my old pair of Converse, right? Right. Okay, which have no arch support. And my foot is crippled. Oh, right? I get that. You see, I we're get getting old. Plantar fasciitis. That's what it is. Oh, tell us what it's like. It's very sore on the heel. Very sore on the heel, yeah. And if you don't, you need to sort this out, actually, because if you don't, your whole foot will seize up. I get that all the time. You see, this is what I was thinking. I'll and, give you and, some exercise. And now, and now you know what's happening now. Yeah. I'm now getting ads, right? Yeah. For soft shoes, for orthopedic <laughs> outfits, right? I used to get Viagra good, ads. Nice I used to get shoes. ads for Viagra. They're gone now. All I'm getting now is ads for soft, like kind of priest shoes. You know the shoes a priest used to wear? Right, yeah, yeah, soft yeah, yeah, ones, exactly. right? So my crimbo's been very odd. I mean, I've been reading and everything, but I'm crippled now. What shite have been reading this year? Oh, well, I have been reading. I tell you, I've been reading about a fellow called Xenophon. Xenophon right. was the first economist, right? Xenophon. Where was he from? Greece, of course. Right, He was right, okay. hanging out in Athens about 500 BC. Xenophon was a warrior, philosopher, and economist. Quite like that. He's a busy guy. Busy guy, busy guy. 
But do you ever hear the expression, the sea, the sea, talata, talata, which is this great Greek expression. But Xenophon was a geezer who was a Greek general. The Greeks went to fight on the side of Cyrus the Younger, who wanted to take Persian. over. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. And the Persian, Cyrus the Younger, had a mercenary army of Greeks. It was called the Army of the Ten Thousand. And they went in to Persia. And of course, Cyrus got battered, right? Yeah. So the Greeks were left. They had to get out of Persia, which is a long way from Greece. Okay. But there was also my friend Xenophon. So Xenophon figures out the Greeks had a choice. They were stuck in what is now modern-day Iraq. They had a choice. Do we go straight through what will be now Turkey to try to get to the Aegean? Or do we go up to the Black Sea and get across that way? Right. And the reason they chose the Black Sea is because the Greeks had these little independent trading cities all across. So, so Greece wasn't really an empire. It was like a collection of trading cities. Right. So the Greek soldiers figured out if we can get to the Black Sea, we can get to Greek communities. We can then get our way across the sea into right. uh, yeah. to Greece. They're fighting their way through and they're being ambushed and yeah, yeah, yeah. But... They arrive at the cusp of the Black Sea and they're up on a big mountain. And this is the great shout that they, one of the soldiers went up and he turned around. He goes, Talata, Talata, the sea, the sea. And then they knew they'd be saved. Now, the reason this is all yeah, in my head, because <laughs> you asked me about my walking and I was walking from the Martello Tower at Sandy Cove to the Martello Tower at Seapoint right. before the L, the sole the of the foot, the hoof and yeah. bath, right? And of course, in the opening pages of Ulysses, Book Mulligan is up on the top of the Martello Tower. In San Diego. And, and he's having a chat with Stephen Dedalus. Right. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Stephen Dedalus, right? And he's saying to Dedalus, right? He's talking about the sea and they're out. The two of them are marveling. He's having a shave. And the only thing, he's having a shave, right? So he's up in the gun turret. He's got his mirror. Mm -hmm. He's having a shave. Mm -hmm. He's looking at the sea. He's saying the sea is marvellous. But he says it in Greek. Thalata, thalata. And he says to Daedalus, if you really want to understand the world, you've got to read the Greek original. So there I was reading about the first economist, and I just migrated up to Sandy Cove, to Joyce, to the tower, the whole thing. Fantastic. And of course, we've been locked down and not yeah. seen a sinner. And Xenophon? Xenoph so Xenophon came back to Greece and... Is it, that's not the root of the word xenophobia. Xenophobic. It could be. It could be. Okay. It could be. He comes back to Greece and at the time... Athens is a very misogynistic republic of freed men, but no women. Okay, so women are very much not part of the Greek idea of democracy. Mm. But Xenophon, being a very much a metrosexual man of the 21st century, yeah. even though he's the 7th century, starts writing about the role of women in what he called icon nomos, which is the business of the household. Okay. That's where economics comes from. So the word economics comes from icon Nomos, which is the business of the house. And Xenophon wrote how critical women were to the yeah, household. Yeah, yeah. So basically there was a yin and yang in relationships. The man could go out and be all macho, yeah. but somebody had to look after the home front. Now, of course, it's, it's pretty much, it's old school now, mm. but it's quite interesting. And what I found fascinating about him was that he was a hard warrior chief guy, you know, a big, big, serious yeah, geezer. Yeah. But he was, as a philosopher... He was much more, how would you say, he was certainly much more modern and sophisticated than Plato and Aristotle and Socrates, who were still wedded to the idea of Greek democracy. And so how come, how come he became so enlightened? 
This is what I'm going to find out. This is what I'm finding out. Right. I'm reading all about it. All right. I will okay. give you... By so the we'll way, so if you sure. listen to the podcast, you'll get chapter by chapter, Xenophon and Enlightenment. The reason I think he became enlightened, John, and this is weird, is because of money, right? All I think right. that money democratized Greece and made it a much more egalitarian society. But that's for a different day. That's for a different day. Right. But so it's, yes, the first economist, Book Mulligan, Stephen Dedalus, The Bad Shoe, The Hooves, all going on. At the Christmas. What a Christmas, huh? <laughs> okay, with the new year, Mac, first podcast back. The news at the minute is vaccine. Thank Jesus it's here. But it's not going as smoothly as we want it. John, I think we should call this podcast Every Day Counts. Because what is critical now is to have a sense of urgency about what's going on. Yeah. So therefore, what I think has been very disturbing for many Irish people is the lack of ambition about the rollout of the vaccine. You look at other countries that have done extraordinary things in the last yeah. week. Ireland, we're going to give out the vaccine Monday to Friday, nine to five. Yeah. yeah. Right? We're not doing it on the weekends. So, it's so typical. Okay? It's so typical. Right? Now, if we get the vaccine right the lockdown will be much shorter than it needs to be. The country will open up and we can go back to normality. That's yeah. if we get it right. But just think about it, right? We have 5 million people in the country. That means 10 million jobs because you need two jobs for this yeah. new vaccine, right? That means if we want to do this in a year, so divide it by more or less 50, that's 200,000 vaccines a week. To be even in a position when we're open next year, let alone yeah, this yeah, year, right? Yeah, yeah. So think at 200,000 a week, what's our target? 20,000. We've already done only 1,500. Now, the Danes, another country, European Union, depended on the same source of the vaccine yeah. because the European Union organized the whole thing, have done 40,000 vaccinations already. My sister-in-law in Belfast works in the Ulster Hospital, John. Yeah. She was vaccinated on the 23rd of December, so before Christmas, right? So frontline workers in the UK, in Northern Ireland, right? I think we are in severe danger, severe danger of not having any organisation on the ground. And it makes no sense because think about it. We locked down on the 14th of March, 2020. Mm -hmm. So since the 14th of March, we have been waiting for the vaccine. Right? Yeah, I mean, in fairness, now, the vaccine only came around in, in November, December. But the idea is, don't you think you'd be kind of prepared? Prepared for it, yeah. yeah right? no, you say, okay, well, this is what we're going to do, so we're going to be prepared, right? And, you know, you think, okay, well, what do you need to do the vaccine? You need lots and lots of spaces, big open places where you can actually vaccinate people, mm. okay? Where the queuing system can work. So you almost need, like, people who organise rock concerts, Gigs. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. People, yeah. Who, people who put 80,000 people in here. It needs them. to be a quick turnaround. And what we seem heard to be in, doing is we out. don't seem to have figured out how we're going to do this. So nobody has got a text or an email to say, we think you will get the vaccine in March or May. Yeah. You have heard nothing. I've heard nothing. Yeah, right? I don't think Nobody's my mom heard has heard my nothing. My mother's heard nothing, right? So there's no even system that has been rolled out. Now, I think, and we're going to go to a country in a second that has mm. got, got their act together on this. Again, remember I came back to this idea of skin in the game or not. Yeah. 
the people who are actually being locked down and closed down, all our small businesses we talk about, those people are going to suffer profoundly. But the urgency on the part of the people who don't have skin in the game is always, oh, we can do it next week or the week after, the week after. And all the while, those businesses that have been shut down yeah. end up going out of business. Every day counts, as you say. Yeah, so I think the, the, the watchword for Ireland has to be every minute counts. So we should be looking, if we do 200,000 people a week, it will take us till next year to vaccinate everyone. Now you can say, okay, we only need to vaccinate, let's say 70% of the yeah, population. Yeah. So then we're looking at a figure of maybe about three and a half million. Mm -hmm. Then we're looking at 7 million jobs. Then you do the maths and you work back from that. But we're still needing to get tens of thousands of people through the door every well, single wasn't day. It, I was listening to, to Leo Varadkar just before Christmas then, and th that point was put to him. And he said, uh, oh, yeah, don't worry about it. We'll, we'll catch up, was more or less what he said. We'll catch up with the other countries. And again, this comes back to this idea of not having the urgency, right? Mm. And when you think about countries' reputations, right? Reputations, we talk about soft power a lot, the country's brand, how the country positions itself, yeah. right? Ireland's reputation, lots of good fun, a nice place, etc., but also home to big multinationals, to a successful economy, to very, very high levels of income in comparison to where we came from. Yeah. So there is part of the brand that is efficient. That's an interesting point, actually, because, I mean, the legacy of how different countries are dealing with this will last for, for quite a while. I you know, you'd look at Denmark. We always we have this perception, rightly or wrongly, of the Scandic countries have been really efficient, really great at rolling out public health stuff. And, you know, they pay high tax, but they've got wonderful health systems and education systems and all the rest. And they have, that's part of their brand, as it were, and, and their reputation. So if we make a balls of this, you know, yeah, that, that will impact uh, our kind of brand on the... Absolutely. You know, I mean, you look, at, you look at countries like Sweden, Sweden's brand has been irreparably damaged by them going off on one over COVID. Mm. Okay, because they said, don't worry, we yeah, achieved herd wrong, immunity. Yeah. And once the second wave comes or the third wave, we will be fine. They just got it wrong. And at the time, there was the sense that the Swedes were miles ahead and they were applying science and they'd figured the whole thing out. It didn't work out that yeah. way. And I think Sweden's sense of itself has been badly affected by that. Because at the end of the day, countries have to do very little for their citizens. But one thing you've got to do is you've got to protect them. Yeah. That's a really yeah. simple, basic idea, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That the social contract between the citizen and the state, you know, education, protection, these are basic ideas. If the state cannot protect its people due to the inefficiency of its public sector, of its role. Now you think about our public sector in health, one euro out of every five in tax goes to the health service. Think about that. One euro in every 20%. five. 20%. Exactly. Right. Every year. Yeah. Right. With that, there should be systems in place. And for those, it's funny, years ago, a French friend of mine came to work here and uh, he studied with me years ago in Belgium and he was a French functionaire. And the French, they love this thing called the organigram. What do you mean a functionaire? Functionaire is a French civil servant, right? Oh, Public right, servant. Right, right, functionaire, right. Right. these the grande école, you know, these, these, these Sciences Po and anarchists. These yeah. are kind of swanky. France had this extraordinary Napoleonic system where they created these universities in order 
to create the brilliant functionaire to run the French state. Mm. And France feels very strongly about the state, which is why they're the great TGVs, all these things. The yeah. state power yeah, yeah, yeah. is essential to France. And this friend of mine came to work here and he's a very brilliant guy, really lovely fellow. I met about six months later. I said, how's, how's it like? What's it like here? And he's got an Irish wife. And he said, uh, David, it's uh, very strange. <laughs> I said, why? He says, you have no system. There is no system. I said, how do you mean? He says, if there is a problem, Mick phones Pat and fat Pat phones <laughs> Mick and Mick talks to Tony, Tony talks to Rita, Rita talks to Mary and it's done. Right? Yeah. What's wrong with that? <laughs> but he was saying, but he said, he said, that's great if it's a nod and a wink culture. Like yeah. this was a guy, because in France, I worked for BNP, the French bank. Mm. They had this thing called an organigram. Very French, right? right? And it's an organizational chart. And you've got to slot in to some place, right? And if you're not in an organigram, you're lost, right? right? And we have the opposite system. We have the nod and the wink. It'll be okay. I'll talk to a fella who'll sort it out. Yeah. And that'll be grand. Now that works on an ad hoc way. Yeah. But when you have a systemic challenge like vaccinating your population and you don't have a system or you don't have data, or you've done a digitization, the state doesn't know where everyone lives, or the state doesn't know where all the hospitals are, or where all the doctors are, or they don't know who can administer and who can't, you have a problem. And I think we're looking at that right now. You were talking to your friend Dan Ariely from Israel a little earlier, and Israel is one of those countries that's miles ahead of everybody They're miles else. ahead. They've, they've, they've inoculated a million people, 10% of the population yeah, in two yeah. weeks or something. Yeah. Now, there's there's a bit of controversy over that as well with the Palestinians and stuff, but let's not go there. But I'd love to have a listen to that interview that, you did that, with, with Well, Dan. that conversation, yeah. So Dan Ariely, John, you know, is an old mate of mine. Actually, he was in holidays with us last year. You know, good, good friend. He is by far and away the most impressive behavioral economist in the world. A Harvard professor, now professor at Duke, New York Times bestseller, extraordinary mm. individual. All right. So basically, he, behavioral economics is his thing. So he fuses psychology, mathematics, and economics together. Why do people do things? How can public policy change? How do we nudge people to change their behavior? Fascinating stuff. Mm. All around good egg. He's in Tel Aviv. He's been also working. This is interesting about Israel. Israel do a lot of things wrong. There's no doubt. Mm. But they do a lot of things right as well. And what they did was they decided at COVID, they'd bring in all these experts from all around the place. So experts from Harvard, experts from behavioral economics, psychology, whatever. They bring task force together to actually say, okay, how do we fix this? And what do we learn from this? Which is maybe more interesting. You know, we'll fix it and then we'll learn from it. In Ireland, the impression I get is the HSE does none of this. They hunker down. They say... In a crisis, the last thing we're going to be is open. Whereas these other guys say in a crisis, we're going to be open to other talent, mm. to other ideas. And so Dan's been working with the Israeli government on the behavioral, psychological and social side of COVID. So let's go and talk to him. Dan, how are you? Hi. Um, well, you know, it's a, it was a really, really interesting uh, 2020. I have to say lots of, lots of pain, lots of agony, lots of uh, interesting lessons for life. And like every tragedy, uh, once again, we showed how important social science is. Uh, so, you know, that, that makes me more in demand and feel more useful. So tell me, Dal, just let's go back. You have been working with the Israeli government. Now, uh, listeners will say, that's interesting. The Israeli government, before we talk about the vaccine, has enlisted the support and the expertise and the advice of people well outside the medical community. Uh, why, why is that? Explain what their thinking is. 
So I started very early in March, and actually my I, I worked for the first six months, and then and then I stopped, um, largely stopped. They kept on doing a few a few things on the periphery, but from the beginning it was clear that people's adherence to the rules is going to be central. We also saw lots of really terrible things like increase in domestic violence. And then you say, how would we solve this? And, you know, even the rules about what to do and not to do in COVID, it's, it's not as, as simple as you think, because if you tell to people, you can only go to the grocery store in the supermarket and uh, pharmacy, is it okay to go 10 times, <laughs> you know, or yeah. you know, how, how long can you go on the way? And can you visit people on the way there? You know, what, what exactly, what exactly are the rules? So that was part one. Then we saw lots of things on distance education. This is, by the way, the part that I'm still working on very hard is we, we understood a lot of things about what's dysfunctional about the education system in general, not just during yes. COVID. And we're, we're actually changing some things in a very, very fundamental way uh, with some of the insights uh, we had. For example, we saw that lots of kids were suffering and not learning as much, but some kids were thriving. And there were two types of kids that were thriving. One was kids who are, you know, just bashful in general, and all of a sudden couldn't participate over Zoom. And that's, that's interesting, but not that interesting. But the most exciting ones were the kids who had a passion about anything, and their teachers, parents, and principals allowed them to follow the passion. So imagine a kid likes boats. And instead of reading whatever about Second World War, they read about it from the perspective of boats. All of a sudden, it's really interesting for them, and they read much more, and they prepare projects and so on. So whenever we could ignite kids' interest, but it had to have the support of the parents, teachers, and principal, things worked out really, really well. So, so we're trying now to figure out how do we do it on a scale even after COVID. Anyway, there are many, many other things like this, that basically, you know, every time, like the question of how do you give money to citizens? How do you give money to citizens in a way to, that regenerates the economy and not just uh, puts money into savings accounts, right? So, so all of those, what do you do with unemployment? Encourage people, even though they have a horizon for unemployment, to start looking for a job, even though it's, it's, it's tough. So really fascinating topics. And tell me, so you're going to, what you're saying, so Israel's taking all these sort of, insights it's getting from COVID and over the course of the next four or five years, we'll try to implement some of these on the education side, on the social security side, on, on the general human behavior side of things. Yeah. So, so on the, the first thing that we're doing is on the education side. That's just the clearest and most evidence on the social security side. Uh, absolutely. Uh, some big, some big changes, but you know, one of the big lessons as well. Now Israel has a very, complex government and complex society. So not everything that we recommended could, could worked out and, and some things were rejected on political grounds. Uh, but one of the very, very clear lessons from all of this is how important trust is, right? Trust of the people in the government, trust of the government in people, uh, the police uh, trust in people, people's trust in the police. And this has been a very, very clear indication that we have to invest more in trust as a public good. You know, we, we're going to go to a new elections in a couple of months. So, so we'll see what, what will happen to that because investing in trust is not easy. Somebody has to stand and say, I'm sorry, and we'll, we'll start fresh. 
Yeah. But we'll see if we'll, we'll, everybody realizes at least how important this is. I'll tell you what we're going to do. I'm going to come back to trust, but I want to talk to you now because when we looked at COVID around the world, okay, various countries have various different experiences. Israel had a very good experience in the beginning. The rates were very, very low in comparison, let's say, to Western Europe, right? Then during the summer, Israel's rates started to go up and up and up and up in the late summer. Then in around October, we spoke to an Israeli scientist and the rates were pretty much out of control in terms of what we were seeing in Western Europe. Then they went down again. But now the most fascinating thing is the vaccination program. Israel is now vaccinating 100,000 people a day. Is that the, the, is that the, is that the target or is that actually happening? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So you're absolutely right about the ups and downs. And I will say that trust played a big role in, in what happened in, in the second and third wave. Uh, so Israel uh, is a small country, as you know, and uh, by today, even though we started after the US, more than 10% of the population is vaccinated. And remember, this includes kids. Uh, so, you know, it's, it's, the effective population is, is very high. And, you know, it's not as if we have the most functional government in the world. Uh, however, our healthcare system is socialized and distributed. Explain that to me. So, so you know, we don't have the challenges that the U.S. has, which is who exactly is going to pay for the vaccination, right? It's a socialized medicine. And the other thing is that our HMOs uh, are in every community. Can I stop you so, there? What's a HMO? HMO is the, just a health management organization. So you have uh, you have a health insurance company that's usually an HMO. It's an organization that works partly with the public, partly with the government. We have a few of those, three big ones and a couple of small ones. But what one of the things that they're doing is they go out there to the population. So it's not just in big healthcare centers. If you think about what's the barrier of healthcare, it's, there's a few of them. There's the, the freezing of the vaccination. And of course, being in a small country helps. And then there's the distribution. And the distribution means that you need to have people who stand there and inject people. Yeah. <laughs> they accept people, they take their numbers and so on. So Israel has a lot of those things in communities. And that's basically what you need. By the way, you need it for good health in general. And, and COVID made us realize that people don't want to go to big hospitals. I think I'm hoping that more and more of healthcare would be at the, the communities. Also, the data infrastructure of our HMOs is incredible. Uh, they've been collecting data since their formation, you know, like 70 years ago. So, you know, it, what, the data is not available from 70 years ago in a digital way, but the last 30 years, they're collecting everything. So when you go, all your, all your medical record is available, right? Everything is, everything is there. So we have a distribution, a good distribution in the community, trustworthy, people know where it is with the good data organization. Now, and then the other thing that is happening is the Israeli flexibility, let's call it. So, you know, when you, when you distribute the medications to lots of edge places, there's a real worry of what, what happened to what's not in the refrigeration, yeah. right? So you could say, oh, let me keep everything in the freezer. I'll take them out one by one. Or you can say, no, let me send them to the edges. Let's get people start giving them. But then I might have things left over at the end of the day. What do you do with that? 
Well, what they're doing is that at the end of the day, of course, there's priority, people over 60, people who, who need it first. But at the end of the day, they're just announcing they have leftovers and everybody's invited to show up. Really? So you're saying, you're saying, hold on, we've done the over 65s or the over 55s or whatever our thing is, and we've a thousand vaccines left. Who, who wants to show up and get them? And it's not that much. It's usually a smaller amount because it's in each location, right? So it's basically say, for today, we got out of the freezer a hundred portions for today. Only 85 people over 60 showed up. We have 15 left. Whoever shows up, come up. So, so it's really taking care of the, 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 the supply demand problem. So the, the downside of this approach is that some younger people are getting vaccinated ahead of time, if you will. Yeah. The, the good news is we're not wasting anything and you're able to do it in a much more efficient way. So, you know, if you basically said, oh, let's get a line of how many people would be there tomorrow and let's verify that everybody will be there. And then let's just send 85, so much more hassle, so much more complex. What if five people don't show up? So, so the, 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 cre the creativity, you know, supply and demand at the end of the day, matching supply demand at the edges, always a very, very tricky thing. Absolutely. And when, you're, when you're trying to do something on such huge scale and, and you don't want the whole nation queuing all the time. Now tell yeah. me, so you're doing it 24-7. So yeah. if I'm an Israeli, I, can, I show up at 4 a.m. on a, let's say, Saturday night and I get the job and I go home. So it's, con yeah. it's constant. And how, where are you getting the resources to do this? Because I'm looking at in Ireland, right? We're hearing... First of all, we don't have the vaccines because we haven't got enough. And then I'm thinking, well, how did the Israelis get so much more of this vaccine so quickly? Did you pay more for it? Did no. you do so, a deal with Pfizer? I mean, how do, how's all that sort of technical stuff working? So, so this actually goes back to trust. And Israel is, as a country has a 97, 98 vaccination rate in general. We have a long stand history with Pfizer. And Pfizer, you know, they're, they're not idiots. I mean, they know that at the end of the day, vaccinating people is, is, is the issue, right? It's like, you know, would you get the medication somewhere? And they knew that we can do it. So we got, we got more. And, you know, as, as the world is really so sadly failing in this, we're getting more and more because, you know, like the Americans are unable to vaccinate people. So why, why would Pfizer send them more? more vaccinations. So Pfizer knew in advance that we have the, the approach for delivery and that was part of the, the discussion and the understanding. Uh, and it's a long, long history and Pfizer also wanted successes. Sure, of course. This, of this part. So this is really a good collaboration. But if you think about what the lessons are, for me, I think the lessons are two. The lessons are, you know, distributed healthcare systems, you know, giving, giving 100,000 injections like if you have one line, everybody's standing in one line centralized, it's not going to work. But if you give, you just distribute it to a thousand places, like three people over a day can easily give a thousand injections, but, but it just needs to be lots and lots and lots of different lines. So that's one. And, and the second thing is that you have to figure out the supply demand and understand that there'll be some rule bending at the end, it will not be exactly by your priority, but otherwise you're going to just get stuck in the calculation all the time and not deliver enough. And tell me, so what's going on in Israel? You're talking about a society that is quite heavily 
digitized in the first place. People know a lot about everybody else. The healthcare system defaults to the local rather than what's the case in many European countries, which is you know, huge hospitals that everyone turns up at, okay? So you've got a much more localized community-based system. You know what people want. You know what the demand is. You know where people are. And you've got a system that's prepared to work flat out to get this. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, the other thing about our healthcare workers is they have been incredible. Everywhere in the world, actually. The healthcare workers have been incredible. But it's mostly been people in corona departments that have worked so hard and exposed to so much you know, pain and agony and so on. But now we have the rest of the healthcare system is just everybody who has hands and know how to handle a needle is, is, working. is showing up. But you know, think about in Ireland, how many, how many healthcare workers do you have? Good question. Well, overall, we've nearly 70,000 people employed in hospitals in Ireland. Okay. 70,000. So, so let's assume let's assume that half of them, a third of them, can hold the needle. Yeah, twenty thousand. Uh, let's let's assume that you gave each of them injections. How many injections can they do per can day? Can they do a day? Maybe a hundred. Mm-hmm. <laughs> We're talking about big numbers. Yeah. So, so the issue is not manpower; it's distribution of manpower and data management, and to a degree as well, urgency, Dan. You know, that there has to be a sense of urgency. One thing that we are feeling here, and I think a lot of Europeans are feeling it, is there is a disjoint between the urgency that's been felt by certain parts of the population to get our act together and get this thing done, and a sort of a a lack of ambition on the other side. So, for example, you find this amazing. Ireland has only vaccinated 1,500 people, right? We're on holidays at the weekend. We're doing, we're not, we're not doing 24 seven. We're doing Monday to Friday, nine to five. Denmark, on the other hand, with European country accessing the vaccine from exactly the same place from the European fund has done 45,000 already. The United Kingdom has done seven or 800,000. So we are really miles behind. In the UK, my understanding is that their approach is going to not give the second dose for now. So they're going to try and get everyone done first. Yeah. Well, that makes sense. Like, for example, my sister-in-law works in a hospital in Belfast, 100 miles up the road. She got the vaccination uh, before Christmas. So they're miles ahead of us. So Mm -hmm. what we're dealing with something, Dan, is a lack of ambition, a lack of trust. But this distribution, what you're saying is this is just a pragmatic problem. You take the amount of people who can give the jab, you see how many jabs can you give every day, and then you figure it out from there. But let's remember something else, that uh, this approach also creates excitement. You know, you remember the, the notion of what's called social proof. And social proof is, let me see what other people are doing. So when, when you have people standing in line and you have information about, hey, there are, there are a few dosage left here and there and who wants to go, this is all creating excitement uh, about sure. this. Actually, one of the things I wanted to do and didn't, we didn't have the time to do it was to do a list, a wait list for every citizen in the country of when they're going to get the vaccination. And the idea was to see this long wait list and to get excited over moving forward in queue, a little bit like Disneyland, you know, when, when the queue is moving forward. I don't know what is the rate of vaccination hesitancy in Ireland 
but there are also some things about the creating of excitement. So, you know, we had political figures and celebrities vaccinated early. Uh, we asked people to post things online. Uh, sure, so, to, so, to, to generate the big, like a, a national event almost. So, so to generate, to reduce some of the fears, right? And then, and then on top of that, to create the idea that this is a desirable thing, that people are standing in line, people want it, people that we look up to are in favor. So that was a part as well. Dan, can I ask you about the anti-vaxxers in Israel? Where are they? I mean, they're very, very vocal all over Western Europe, not just in Ireland, but all over Western Europe. Vaccine hesitancy from the surveys that have been done, whether that they're that accurate or not, looking at about 80% of people want to get the vaccine. So there's a, there's a, there's a decent chunk are very, very happy and are just waiting to get it. What about the anti-vaxxers in Israel in terms of their influence? So, so the, the anti-vaxxers and the, the people who are hesitant and let's, let's separate them. They're not, they're not the same. I, I think we have about 2% of the people who are anti-vaxxers. And you know, with Corona, especially in the beginning, I was deeply attacked. So, you know, up to basically the end of May, uh, we had only 100 people passed away, more or less, from Corona. And in a regular week, up to that point in Israel, 1,000 people die in a regular week in the year. During Corona week, 800 people die. Right? There were no car accidents. There were no hospital infections. I mean, no surgeries. So, so the death rate was very low. And the anti-vaxxers were conspiracy theorists, right? The government is locking us up. Corona is not a real thing. Look what's happening here. We don't know what's happening in other countries, but here, like the fact that we were successful made them more, more powerful. And they have been very aggressive and including going after the Facebook pages of people who are, were sick, were terribly sick, still have some carry some, some leftovers from this and just wanted to share people to, for people to be careful. And the Axie vaxxers would just go against them and humiliate them and embarrass them. And it was, it was really terrible. So that's, that's, a, that's a population that everybody has. And, you know, we have to think about what we do with that long, long term. But it's not about more information. It's not about telling them they're stupid. I think it is about acknowledging you know, that it's an ideology. It's like people, you know, people who are against abortions, right? It's something very deep in their ideology. In this case, it's different, but it's an ideology. In terms of the vaccine hesitancy, we are trying to create an approach. We don't have to do it yet because we have so much more demand than, than supply, but we're getting there. Hopefully in a couple of weeks, <laughs> we'll have to do something. We will probably take the green passport approach which basically means that you get lots of rights if you are vaccinated and some rights. So for example, we would probably say restaurants, if you have a green passport, if you've been vaccinated, you can go. If you don't, it's at the discretion of the owner of the restaurant. Yeah. No sports events, no public transportation. I mean, we'll, we'll probably do a few things uh, like that. And you know that I'm in favor of opt-in and opt-out, so the system we're designing right now, we'll see what will happen is that everybody will get an appointment. And if you don't want to show up for the vaccination, you have to opt out. Then you yourself have to inform your employer that you decided not to do it. So you have some bureaucratic hassle plus knowledge. You have to inform your kid's school. 
that you're not doing it. And then you're, you're getting a red passport instead of a green passport. Now, I don't think this would help with the anti-vaxxers. They're very extreme, but I think it would help. Like if you think about the 20% who are hesitant, how many of them would do it if it was easier and gave them some benefits and so on. So my guess, without knowing the specific in Ireland, is that you have like one or 2% who would not take it. And the other 18, 19%, if it was easier and convenient and they got to yeah. go to soccer matches, they would, they exactly. would do it. They're open to persuasion. Dan, before, before we go, can I ask you about the, the Palestinian question? So what I'm reading is that the Palestinians in the West Bank, the, the, the Israeli settlers in the West Bank are being vaccinated. The Palestinians are not. Why is that? And, and where does that all lead? Because there's, there's, there's moral issues, there's practical issues, there's political issues. What's your take on that? So first of all, the, the problem is slightly more complex than that. So as you know, I- Israel, we have two Arab populations. Uh, we have the Israeli Arabs who are citizens of Israel and live in the green territory. And we have Palestinians who are not citizens of Israel. They are citizens of Palestine. They vote for a different government in a different country. With the Israeli Arabs, in principle, there's lots of efforts to vaccinate them, but there are trust issues with the government. So they're a little slower yeah. to take it. And, and we're working on that. Uh, but there's availability of vaccination. Actually, some of the uh, the leftovers sometimes are, are especially heavy in the Arab villages because the government sends vaccinations there. People don't take it enough and then there are leftovers and then the the Jewish people show up at night to get what's what's left. In terms of the the Palestinian the Palestinians, look, this is a an, an ongoing uh, tragedy that is, is showing up here in a couple of ways. It's, it's not just the vaccination that we have to think about. You know, it's these two nations, people have been at odds for a long time. The Palestinians have de facto a state and a government, but they are dependent on Israel economically. They don't have many sources of labor. You start Corona and you close the border and, and, they have employment issues. And then, of course, they have their own hospitals and so on. And, and I think the, the real question is, how do we view the relationship between the Palestinian territories and Israel? Right now, these are two states that are at odds. Like you wouldn't say to two states at the state of, of war, uh, why don't you help your neighbor? You know, this is, this is a very, very sad situation where we're, we're neighbors we're dependent on each other. They depend on us economically in a deep way because they haven't been able to develop economic stability. And another question is, you know, what steps should the Israeli government do to, to aid the people who attack us, right? There are rockets still being sent this week or some new rockets that we haven't seen before sent to Israel territory. So, you know, the corona, I think, showed us how important collaboration is in many ways. I, I think it would be, it, it's, it's a humanitarian nice thing from Israel to do to help another state. Uh, it's tough to help a state in a state of war, uh, you know, a, a sort of uh, state of war. But, but, you know, the whole world is so much more reliant on each other. 
in these days. Absolutely. And I, I was also thinking, even for reputational-wise, you, know, you, you, you know, we talk about trust, we talk about reputation. As a gesture, if the Israelis were to vaccinate Palestinians, I think these things count in the long term for huge reputational upside for a country like Israel, from seen from the outside. Yeah, I think I think it's possible. I, I would say that Israel, you know, does lots of terrible things from a reputational perspective, and from time to time they do wonderful things from a reputational perspective. For example, you know, in Italy, in the first stages of Corona, we sent people over to help. But the, the feeling in Israel, in general, is that when we do good things, we don't get the reputational benefits. But I I think that this just exposes the dependency we have on each other more and more in this complex world. And and we have to think about what do we do? And, you know, personally, I think that, you know, maybe peace agreement is, is a bit far-fetched at this moment when trust is so low, but maybe a collaborative economic agreement of some some sort is, is kind of a, a good time to try and, and do something. We'll, we'll see what, what the next government in Israel would, would want. But, but I think the real issue is dependency and trust. Yeah, and you've got to build trust and then you've got to, because we're all dependent. I mean, that's the extraordinary thing I noticed even here between here and Northern Ireland. We had one set of COVID rules. They had another set of COVID rules, but people are going up and down through the border every day. So, you know, yes. we, we are, our COVID cases migrate into theirs, theirs migrate into us. So, I mean, everyone's, I mean, the notion of a border when faced with a virus is a ludicrous idea. Yeah. An absolutely ludicrous. Well, listen, Dan, I will let you go and we'll see you in uh, Zlaren maybe this summer. I, uh, I'm counting on August. Okay, I'll see you in August. Take care, man. See you, my friend. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. It's always good to hear Dan, actually, but... The one word that comes out of that interview is trust. Trust on so many levels. Trust in in the information we're being fed by media. Trust in your government, as you were saying beforehand. You know, you trust them to actually get the job done, to inoculate yeah. us all, to vaccinate us all. And and that was the big thing that that came out of his work with the Israelis. Well, I mean, you know, the the, the one thing there, look, you look at the difference between 
the take-up in Israeli Arab villages and Israeli Jewish villages. Yeah. So the Israeli Arabs naturally don't trust the Knesset government because why should they? Yeah. Sure. Right? And that is something that percolates down even to their acceptance of the vaccine because the back of their head, they're thinking, maybe these Zionists really aren't on our side. No, really, you know, that's what they're thinking. You know, big, you're, big conspiracy. Well, you're, you're sitting in an Arab kitchen and you're saying, fuck, man, do we trust them? Right? Because why would I trust them? Right? In economics, trust is an extraordinary ephemeral concept, John, that economists cannot price, but it makes the difference. If you think, if you walk into a deal with somebody, you're doing a deal with somebody, and I trust you and you trust me, shake hands, we walk off. Mm. No paperwork, no lawyers no contracts, something called trust. Now, if you look at the history of humanity, our history is as an unbelievably cooperative species. All this nonsense in economics that we're hyper-competitive, right? Mm. And we're dog-eat-dog. Dog. We're not. If you look at how did humans become the species we are, we came up because we are cooperative, right? And in the bands, like if you imagine tracking even a big, big mammoth years ago, right? <laughs> yeah. We cooperated to it. Yeah, yeah, you go course. up there and light a fire and freak out the mammoth and he'll run down this thing and we'll throw a spear at him. And then well, you can't do these big projects on your own. Whether so, it's- and, and what gels it all together is trust. I trust you to deliver. Yeah. And if I trust you to deliver, I will do this thing called reciprocate. I will give you back. So imagine this idea that I always think economics can be summed up in a good economy summed up in you scratch my back and I'll scratch yours. Mm. And if you get that going in a society that we reciprocate, that I do something for you, but I know somewhere down the line you'll do something for me. That's what profoundly reduces the cost of business. Okay? Yeah. Now, think about, so the rate of interest, think about the rate of interest. The rate of interest is high because I don't trust you. So I say, you're going to give yeah. me 10% because yeah, yeah. you know what? You might yeah. disappear. If I trust you, the rate of interest falls, the cost of business falls, right? So trust is everything. So how do you trust your government? Fascinatingly, it's through transparency. The more open you are, the more likely I am to trust you. Yeah. Our government, unfortunately, operates in a different way, which is that when they're in crisis, they do what I would call the nose tappers, John. If you knew what I knew, yeah, yeah. you were right. Okay. So well, knowledge is power. So knowledge is power. It's about holding on to that. But the dissemination of knowledge is also liberating when yeah. it comes to public trust. So if somebody doesn't trust the vaccine, not because they're anti-vaxxers, but because they think, look, I, I read something that somebody told me, I'm not too sure, you know, right? How do you encourage that person to come yeah. forward? You have to build up the trust. You have to reassure that person, right? Now, I think that what Dan is onto is something crucial, that the Israelis trust their own state. The Arab Israelis do not trust the Jewish state, yeah. right? The Israelis trust their own state. Why? Because at a certain stage in all their various wars, the state has kicked in and protected them. So it's a really strong bond they have with what they would call the state of Israel. Okay? Yeah. Well, I thought and that it's, was... It's, and it's over and above you know, your government. You can be right or left or net. Yeah. Or, but when it comes to a crisis, so I think that's what he's talking about. Yeah, I thought it was interesting what he said was that investing in trust is not easy. But what COVID has done has exposed the interdependence of the Israelis and the Palestinians. 
in the dependence of all of us. Yeah. Well, yeah, true, true. But particularly there, yeah, since since Dan was was talking about that, yeah, I no, thought that was fascinating. It is fascinating, you know. And we are unbelievably interdependent. And you know, this idea and what what's kind of been annoying a bit in COVID is this it's what I would call COVID nationalism. Like we're doing better than you, and you're doing worse than us. Mm, yeah. I mean, the one thing we know about a disease, it doesn't respect boundaries. Yeah. You know, it's not something that can be defined by race. But to come back to trust, right? Come back to us. I think our state now has got to do a significant, or has got to increase significantly people's trust, right? The last podcast we did with Kev just before Christmas, mm. he broke that survey down of the Irish voter. Yeah, yeah. And so you had the zero COVIDs, who were about 25% of the population, yeah. who want to go to zero. You had then this big chunk, which were people who support the government, about 39%. The sort of the green jersey brigade. Yeah, Pull on yeah. the green jersey, right? Yeah. Then you had the fed ups, you know, about another 25% of people. Oh man, I'm just fed up with this. Yeah. And then you had the more extreme anti-vaxxers, right? Now, how you get people on side is you increase their sense that you're in control. And interestingly, how you, in a technologically open world, with WhatsApp, with Twitter, with Facebook, with Instagram, how you actually communicate trust is by being even more transparent than you were before. So when you make a mistake, you say, hands up, we made a mistake here, right? Mm. And you see, explain to people, this is how we're going to roll out the vaccine. This is how we're going to lock down. We're hoping that it will last for this long. If you look at somewhere like, for example, the UK, the messaging, like Boris, the problem with Boris Johnson is that he never delivers bad news. He can't, he's incapable of doing it. <laughs> So he just turns yeah. up and he says, this is going to be fantastic. Britain's going to be wonderful. And the average Brit goes, man. Yeah, we've right? heard this before. We've heard this spiel before. So, yeah. so trust is about, there's no human that doesn't want to be told something nice. And there's no human that naturally goes forward to be told something unpleasant. It's just in our nature. We'd much prefer, you know, yeah, yeah. St. Augustine, please make me virtuous, O Lord, but just not yet. <laughs> yeah. Right? Yeah. Okay. But you know what, Mac? When it comes to trust, we've been here before. Back in 2008, mm -hmm. the big talk was how we've lost trust in our banks, in our banking system. And I remember, I'm sure you do yeah, too, do, all yeah. the, you know, it was all about trust. How can we trust these guys again? But we're talking largely <laughs> with the same people. Well, that's actually true. That is true. Like, if you look back in 2020, trust is the one thing that we've lost. Well, as far as I can see, it's partly due to all the stupid conspiracy theories, all the notions that people have about stuff, ideas above their station that they don't fully understand the science behind it. Then, of course, the big orange fellow over, over across the water has made a mockery of trust. So when you're talking about trust, trust is the one thing that we've lost. It's like, it's like, it's a, like anything between friends, John, right? You lose trust, right? What basically makes you friends is this sense that you have my back, I have yours, okay? Mm. If you lose this, and it's easy to lose. Yeah. It's very, very difficult to reconstruct. So if you think that politics, economics, the way in which our society operates, operates on the basis of legitimate leadership. So how how is a leader or a political party or an organization or an employer or whatever, a leader, how do they derive their legitimacy? They derive their legitimacy through two ways. One is they can either be a, I'm going to be a bully and I'm going to scare you into following me, mm -hmm. which is very fragile. Okay, yeah. 
it's your Trump style of leadership. Yeah, yeah. Are your I'm going to be a leader that you trust, so you follow me, irrespective because I'm setting example. So in fact, in your head, you have arrived at this conclusion, and that's all based on this idea of trust. I trust you. How do I? I trust you to deliver. I don't. I trust you not to screw things up. I trust you not to cheat. Think about all these basic things. I trust you. But you need to build that up with a track record of it some tricks, sort. Yes. Yeah. So what I'm saying is, and you're right. The last few years trust in society has been fractured. Yeah. That fracture has been amplified by fake news. That fake news has been amplified by the amount of platforms mm. available for information, okay? So for a leader to come through or a set of leaders, and it doesn't have to be an individual, it can be just around an issue. Mm. And let's, let's take that this issue is vaccination. So it's a trust the citizen can be protected by the state. That is the challenge for all democracies in 2021, the democracies that get this right will get this reputational premium, which will be something that we can take forward. But the democracies that get it wrong will destroy the reputation, not just externally, but internally with their people as well. And that's the big risk. How are you doing there? This new year is kind of special because you're going to be locked down. You're going to be stuck at home thinking, what am I going to do? Why don't you give yourself or the person you love the gift of knowledge? And join me and we can learn economics together in this lockdown. You'll do an economics course together. We'll do tutorials. We'll do Ask Mac. You can drop in questions. I'll answer them. And even better, just because this lockdown is going to be such a pain, we're going to give you a 15% discount for this subscription, the annual subscription. So if you want to learn economics in the lockdown, why don't you subscribe? Patreon.com forward slash Dave McWilliams. And let's learn economics together.